with Ben Tompkins, presented by Four Roses. All right, here we go on a Friday. What's going on, everybody? This is Real Talk. I am Ben Tompkins. We are presented by Four Roses Bourbon, and this is my interview with Ed Hamilton. Ed is a Louisville legend, a Louisville native. He is a he has a hometown hero banner. He is a sculptor. He is a storyteller, most of all, and. He is a guy that brings a lot of perspective to some of the stuff that we spend about an hour and a half talking about. Ed came to the studio, was kind enough to do that, and we had a really great conversation. Uh, Ed has lived a very interesting life. You know, he found out at 57 years old that he was adopted, and... um, you know, he, he, he began studying art and then was a teacher for a little bit and then transitioned into just a, a fate opportunity, a story that you've got to hear. How basically, uh, if he hadn't have done this one thing, then his career might have been completely different. He, there, might, there might not have been an Ed Hamilton as we know it, you know what I mean? But there was and there is, and I can't wait for you guys to hear this interview. Ed is a historian, and Ed tells the story of Louisville growing up as a child here. Uh, we spend a lot of time talking about his artistry, about the creative process, about inspiration, um, a lot of time about his pieces, you know, where they're at. Um, uh, as an artist, you know, it's like people ask you, what's your favorite piece that you've ever done you know that's like picking your favorite kid you know uh so we spent some time talking about that it's really a great conversation um uber stories part 17 next wednesday every wednesday uber stories um we do interviews with people who are i'm shooting for quality interviews with quality people quality content and uh this is certainly one of those times so i'm excited to uh to get into this one uh that's all i got that's all i got Uh, enough get out of the way all right here we go this is my conversation with ed hamilton we now welcome ed hamilton to the show ed Thanks for being here, man. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of telling you that uh, I had come across your Hometown Heroes banner mm-hmm. and had made it a point in the summer to start reaching out to as many people who were living um, as right. I could and have them on the show and right. just uh, as, as almost an exercise in exploring this city, right? Because mm-hmm. somebody once said that you, you can't know where you're going unless <laughs> you know where you're from right, and that's where right. you've been. That's right. And so I was like, shame on me. You know, I, I should know who these people are if there's banners yeah. of them hanging in yeah, the city. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. And as I started reading about you and your work and um, your career, uh, especially in the summer with the protests and everything that was mm-hmm. going on, it seemed like mm-hmm. a very timely conversation mm-hmm. to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you to Kendra for working so diligently with, with me oh, yeah. through over, right. over the months to make this happen. This has been months right, in the right, making, right, so right. I'm really, really yeah. appreciative for that. It's, it's Kendra's my daughter. Okay. And uh, she's into PR and, and, and doing that type of thing and working on a concept for the studio now as our legacy. So she wants to turn the studio into a visitor's uh, conference and artistic center. Nice. Now, where I fit in on this, I'm not sure. I guess they'll <laughs> just put me in some glass and I'll, <laughs> people will come through and, and I'll be doing some clay work or whatever, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Standing right now. Oh, hello, hello. How are you? <laughs> well, in, uh, so who knows how this is going to go down? Yeah. I, I mean, it, it, they'll be like, wow, did, yeah. did Ed do that statue? Yeah. It should be yeah. like, no, that's Ed. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> 
animal what is it uh, the, the uh, animatronics or whatever they call that you know like uh, the president hall in uh, disney world disneyland you know yeah yeah yeah, yeah they yeah. just froze them yeah just, yeah, 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 yeah just yeah. in a freezer that's know? right that's right so well um i want to ask you about your artistry about your creative process mm -hmm. about a bunch of different things but let's just start out what was it like you're you're born in Cincinnati, but you're mm -hmm. from Louisville, mm -hmm. and you've lived here. Why don't you tell us, you know, mm -hmm. at, at what age you moved here? And I'm really curious just to gain your perspective on mm -hmm. growing up in Louisville mm -hmm. and being here over the years and what's mm -hmm. different, what's the same, what mm -hmm. do you remember from your childhood? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Start wherever you'd like. Yeah, well, I have a very interesting life, I think. Uh, I found out at 57 years old that I had been adopted, and all the years of growing up, there was only one picture of a young young child on sitting on the edge of a bed. Cute picture. And I often thought, where are the other pictures? <laughs> I never knew, you see. Uh, so when I found that out, I did not realize that my mother and father who raised me, who were just wonderful, uh, and I was raised on Six and Walnut Street, and I was brought here probably, I was born in 47. I was brought to Louisville in probably close to 50, 1950, okay. 49, 1950. So that meant I, I was in an orphanage for at least a couple of years before I was brought here. Uh, throughout the, my childhood, I had no idea, you know. And back in those days, things were very secretive, you know. Mm. And when I did find out, I asked my cousins and things. I said, man, didn't y'all know this? She said, they said, yeah, we knew. But we were so scared to tell you because your mother threatened our life, literally. <laughs> I mean, really, you know. So, I mean, she should have worked for the CIA, man, because she could keep <laughs> secrets. I swear to God. But anyway, growing up was wonderful because... My mom and dad became, uh, they, they were entrepreneurs. Uh, I was raised at the corner of 6th and Walnut Street and 7th and Walnut Street. That's where we lived on the corner of 7th and Walnut, which is now Muhammad Ali Boulevard, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, but at the apex of 6th Street, uh, right there at, 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 in Walnut, there was a big, huge building there. And, of course, there was all sorts of businesses. That was the black business district of Louisville back in the day, see. Okay. And this, this predated urban removal because in 64, urban renewal came through and just devastated all those buildings and homes and everything. So, anyway, my dad was a tailor, and my mom became a barber. So I literally grew up in a tailor-barbershop combination. Now, the building that my dad's shop was in had uh, uh, various other businesses that were in that same building. That building was the old Mammoth Life and Insurance Company, Black-owned Life Insurance Company, see? Mm -hmm. And on the corner was the uh, lyric, uh, uh, liquor store, and then next to that was uh, uh, you go up some steps. There were doctors and lawyers' offices up on the top, but then there was the actual opening of the Mammoth building itself that you go into, and then, uh, oh, I forgot, the Lyric Theater was in the same complex. So there was a theater, liquor store, my dad's shop called Your Shop back in the late 30s, early 40s. 
before he married my mother, Amy. And uh, when she came along, she became a barber. Now, most women back in the 40s and 50s were beauticians. Mm. They weren't real, you know, cutting men's hair. Mm-hmm. They were doing ladies' hairs. So, but she she wanted to be a barber, and that's what she became. And so, uh, when Dad remodeled, had the shop remodeled, uh, they gutted the old portion of it and put in a big picture glass window out front. You know, a two chair barber shop right there in the front with the sinks and everything, the back mirror drops and the cabinetry and all of that stuff. You know, mm-hmm. very Art Deco like. You know what I mean? Sure. And then uh, I, I I remember seats going down the wall, and then about eight seats on the you know, on the right side as you come in for when you sit and wait till your turn comes. Then there was a four chair bo- uh, uh, shoe shine parlor right there too. Then in the back counter, then you go past the counter. That's where the tailoring shop was, and my dad's a sewing machine, pressing machine, and all that kind of stuff. So I was always getting into that stuff. So I never knew. Well, what kid knows what you're going to do as you're growing up? <laughs> you know, you just you just being a kid, right? You know, but I was having fun, and I, growing up as an only child, I never knew that one day I would realize that I'd find my birth mother, and I had two brothers and two sisters. Mm-hmm. So, uh, life was good, but life was segregated back then. Of course, you know. Uh, we could go to Walnut Street, but you couldn't try on clothes. You couldn't try on shoes. You could buy them, but you couldn't try them on. You couldn't go to the theaters on 4th Street. You couldn't go to the restaurants on 4th Street. So hence, uh, it never really affected me because we had everything on our blocks for 10 or 12 blocks, you sure. see. We had restaurants. We had theaters. We had the liquor stores. We had the insurance companies. You know, people lived in the buildings. We had the doctors, the lawyers, everything that was on 6th Street was every place else in town, you see. But there was, it, it was just a time of segregation. Mm-hmm. Now, I do recall uh, 54, I think it was, when they uh, desegregated the school system, Brown versus Brown. We integrated a school around the corner on 6th Street called George D. Prentice School. Now, George D. Prentice, I never knew. Uh, the connection to that name, to that man, to that school until later on. If you ever gone down to the 4th Street Library, on the back side of going into the main building, mm-hmm. there was this huge marble statue man sitting in this chair, carved. And that was George D. Prentice. Now, you know George D. Prentice was the editor at one time of the Courier-Journal, and he's the one that wrote the editorial that literally almost started that Black Sunday uh, uh, massacre of of wanting to go and burn down St. Martin's Catholic Church up the street on Shelby Street, Mm. where my studio's located. I'm on Shelby between Chestnut and Madison, and St. Martin is down the street between Chestnut and Broadway or Gray Street, see? So I never had I never knew that connection until like I said as I grew up later on and and, and I thought well that's that's <laughs> that's the the man who <laughs> almost started this cultural uh from the catholic to the irish or you know, whatever and it was a german 
that that was an all German area right there too, is is when where, where my studio is now. And what was it that he said that was so? Oh, he kind of inflamed the the, the riot. Wanted to to start. The, the, I guess it was because the Protestant and the Catholics or something was going on, and he flamed that in this editorial, and 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 and, and all of a sudden somebody got the idea of going down. Let's burn down the church, burn down St. <laughs> Martin's. You know, so that. Uh, that was something, but anyway, you never know what uh, you never know what you, you you're gonna find out about as you you're growing up. You know <laughs> what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I matriculated through the uh, school system, uh, went to uh, Parkland Junior High, and that's kind of where the discovery from my Parkland Junior High teacher Harriet O'Malley discovered that I had a talent for art, and then from that point it went into Shawnee High School. And she, Patsy Griffith, she found that talent within me and wanted to develop it. And so from her, that's when I went to art school and did four years of art school at the Art Center School that later turned into the Louisville School of Art. And uh, then graduated, got out, said, what do I do now? <laughs> you know, so I, I found a teaching job at Iroquois High School teaching ceramics and uh, sculpture. Mm-hmm. So I was now now I could literally make a living of the craft that I was learning to 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 become an artist, you know. Uh, so it was it, uh, it was a validation of four years of art school, you know, uh, to be able to 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 come out of there and 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 put my that craft to work, you know. Because most artists go to school, become an artist. Then they got to go find some other job to support themselves, sure, you yeah. know. So sometimes it don't work that way. But along the way, I had had various jobs. I'd, I'd waited tables, worked over. You remember the? I don't. You may not, but it, uh, the old uh, Charlestown uh, powder plant. They used to make shells for the Vietnam War, hmm. and uh, I worked there for a while. Doing what? Actually, I got fired from there. <laughs> Doing what? <laughs> uh, <laughs> what we were in a shed out back. And the shells would come down, you know, the big shells that you put in the, the big guns, see. And they would come down the conveyor. They'd roll down, and various people would do various things to them. By the time it got to me, I had this big, huge metal die thing, die cast thing. And what it would do, somebody would insert a wire with a lead thing on, the, on it, twist it. When it got to me... I would put it in the, the the thing, and it would go stamp USA on it. Boom. All night long. That's all I did. Boom. With this darn machine. See? <laughs> Boom. I mean, boring as hell, you know. <laughs> but what happened was, and it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Now, it was the most money I had ever made on a job, okay? Uh, and I was on my 90-day probation period, a, a, a weekend that it would have been. I, they, they couldn't have done anything to me. Mm-hmm. But alas, alas, one of the workers uh, took a break, took it too long. By the time I got my break, I just went outside. And now this was nighttime work; I wasn't working during the day. See, so you know, I never really got used to working at night. Anyway, I I sat outside the shed, and lo and behold, hey, I was out like a light, gone, man. <laughs> I didn't know it. Uh. I felt somebody kick my foot. It was a supervisor. He said, where's your badge? He said, oh, right here. While I was sleeping, he slipped my badge off. 
And that was for termination. Wow. So I said, okay. I often wonder today, <laughs> I wonder if he's ever seen me in the paper or on TV. And that's the guy I fired. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, that would be such poetic justice for me <laughs> if I if I could know who that man was. He may not even be alive today. I don't know who he was. But uh, that would be poetic justice. Yeah. <laughs> see, see who you fired? I didn't need this job. No way. <laughs> didn't like it. <laughs> but anyway. Is it is it things like that? Have things like that driven you in your career? Oh, sure. I'm I'm driven just by virtue of um, the, the creative thing, the creative processes in me, in my soul. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, it's not that I ever set out to say I was going to be an artist, uh, but I think I learned the ways and means of, of 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 being able to survive by being a part of that community that I grew up in, because. My, my dad and mom went to work every day. I saw people going to work, all the stores and every day, you know, every, everybody was doing something, mm -hmm. you know. And Walnut Street was interesting because during the week, it was always a hustle and bustle, you know, people just going in and out of places, you know, everybody's doing. And me as a kid, I'm just kind of on my roller skates running around on the sidewalk, you know, skating around. People tell me, watch out, boy, you're going to run somebody over them damn <laughs> Look, so... I think that's a part of the process of being able to have role models that, you know, it, it, maybe subconsciously it was just, it was put into you, you, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So when it came time for me to get a job, I mean, you know, I had no hesitation. You know, I wasn't about to sit on my butt at home with mama, you know, and she's saying, aren't you going to do something, you know? <laughs> but she always had me doing something anyway. You know, I was responsible for the yard. I was responsible for this. I was responsible for that. And she always put in my head, you can do anything. And, you know, and somehow I just, you know, so I have that virtue of, 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 of having to be, I like to accomplish something during the day. You know, if I don't accomplish something during the day, I feel like I haven't done anything, you know. So that's where I'm at. <laughs> yeah, I think it's interesting because a lot of times, um, especially um, people who go on to achieve great things, sometimes mm -hmm. it's it's different things that motivate us, mm -hmm. you know, and it, it can be positive mentorship, which mm -hmm. you certainly had, but it can mm -hmm. also be, you know, that supervisor that mm -hmm. we never forget. That's right. You know, that That's we, right. and, and uh, I, I'm definitely somebody like that too, that mm -hmm. I've, I definitely have uh, positive role models in my mm -hmm. life, but I also mm -hmm. have people that I've mm -hmm. always thrived on proving wrong. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. I think sometimes has propelled me even mm -hmm. more than the positive stuff. You right, know, right, it's like right, drawing right. upon the yeah. negative stuff. And yeah. it's like, yeah, I'm going to show them. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, 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 right. Now, I'd never gotten to that point because I guess I was so in tune with wanting to be and do. No, You know, I, I never really got a lot of, oh, boy, you ain't going to do nothing. You know, now I did get that one time at school, high school. My English teacher said, oh, she said, where you want to go to school? I said, well, I'm going to go to U of L. She said, I don't know. You'll never get to U of L. You'll never make it. And I did. So proved her wrong. Yeah. Wonder if she's watching TV. I bet she. <laughs> Take that. <laughs> Take that. Miss whatever her name. I don't even remember her name no more. You know. So, all right. A million different things are running through my mind. Um, 
when you find out that you're adopted, did that change anything for you? Not really. The only thing it changed was that I didn't have the blood that I thought I had running through my body from the my my my, my parents that raised me, you know, Hamp and Amy. Uh and then it was like, well, why didn't she tell me? But you know what? I'm glad because I, I don't know how that would have affected me at six, let's say 16 years old, something, you know, because most adopted kids, once they become a certain age, they're told and they know, mm-hmm. you see. But there was always something that I just couldn't put my finger on. Because I always kept trying to think, why was I born in Cincinnati? But nobody ever talked about it, see? Well, there were times when Dad and Mom, we would get in the car and go to the uh, Crosby Field ball games. They enjoyed that. So I had all these years rationalized that we were in Cincinnati. Mama was pregnant, getting ready to drop this baby, couldn't make it back to Louisville in time. (laughs) Had to go to the hospital. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) <laughs> a great scenario, huh? Yeah, checks out. Checks out. Could sure. could have done it, but we never never talked about it. So I just let I just put it in my mind that was it, and I didn't I didn't question it, you know. But uh, what changed was I needed to find out health now, because now I'm thinking, uh oh, I love these people, they love me, but I ain't got their blood. So now, where does that leave me, you know, health-wise? See? Mm-hmm. So when I – and I, 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 I went to the uh, uh, family uh, court and petitioned. Now, most adoption records are closed records, and most adoption folks, some don't want to be found, and some do, you know. So lucky for me, it took a year to get the records. They called me and said, Mr. Hamm, we got your uh, uh, records. I said, okay, you can come down, but you can't take anything out, but you can, you know, if you need a copy or something, we'll make a copy for you. Whatever. I said, okay. She hands me this big file, old vanilla folder, you know, the old yellow legal pad papers and stuff, all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 before I opened it, I set it down on the table she gave me a little private room. I could go in and look at all this stuff. And I said, now, do I really want to open this? Do I really Do I really want to know? Well, <laughs> I didn't waste, not waste it, but I didn't, I didn't use all this time wanting to find out, know something, but I was too, I was scared, you know, what I was going to find out. And I said, well, it's now or never. So just, just open up the folder. Come on, let's do this. So I opened it up. And while I thought, oh my Lord, it was true. <laughs> you know, it, it really, it really, it, when you see it in writing, you know, that is it. that's it. <laughs> no more, no less. And so I found that my birth mother was, was in Dayton, Ohio. All this time she was not that far away, mm-hmm. you know, really. And so, and, and the issue, the, 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 the interesting thing was, I look like the people that raised me, you know? I mean, I look like my mama. I look like my daddy. <laughs> but then when I found her, I looked just like her too. <laughs> <laughs> so 
it was it, it, it it's been an interesting road to say the least. Then Kendra and my son and all of them, Dan, why are you looking for these people? <laughs> you know, they 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 didn't they wasn't all that interested in finding them, you know. But what I found was and what we found, we found a very loving woman who had me at fifteen years old. Wow. Mm-hmm. And it could have gone the other way. It could have washed me down the toilet. Or it could have, you know, done the abortion, whatever. Mm-hmm. And or uh put me someplace where nobody ever would have found me. I don't know. I mean, you know, that you gotta count your blessings. And so she was when we when when we found her, I had another friend of mine who uh, is into genealogy, and she's the one that, that, that kept digging and searching, digging and searching, and all of a sudden one day she called and said, Ed, I found her. I said, what? You did? Oh, Lord, what do we do now? <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and, you know, funny thing about it was, she said, and she wants you to call her. I said, oh, my God. How did she know that? Well, Juanita found her and talked to her. My mother's name, my birth mother's name was Virginia. And she said, Virginia wants you to call her. And she gave me the number. And I was at the studio. And I'm, I'm walking back and forth thinking, what, you know, what do you say? You know, uh, I just was scared to pick up that phone. But finally, I just got up in the nerve, picked up that dial, that headphone, and Dialed the number, and sure enough, she answered. And I said, uh, Miss Virginia, I'm Ed Hamilton, and I think you're my birth mother. And she said, yes, I am. I like to lost it. I mean, really. Just the sweetest voice, you know. And so... We talked, and, and, and I was telling about what I do and, 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 and some of the things that I've done, you know, public pieces out around the country. And she said, you know, I was in Detroit. And what it, when she was in Detroit, she was a, a Mary Kay sales lady, mm-hmm. see? And they'd have their conventions. Mm-hmm. And so this one particular time, they gathered in the Cobo Hall lobby. And that's where my 12-foot standing Joe Lewis piece is. And she said, I'd be darned. I was there. I saw it. Why didn't it say something? (laughs) I said, well, bronze don't talk. (laughs) (laughs) I should have felt something, you know. Isn't that something? Mm. So I had a good 13 years with her before she passed. And it it, you know, it's it's been a blessing. I mean, I can't complain, man. I uh, had, a, had a great growing up, had a great meeting to, of the woman that gave me birth, mm-hmm. had a great life with the mama that raised me, gave me all my morals and my values and my dad, you know. So I had two mamas. How, you, how can you complain about that, you know? And so I've got a, a binder this thick. She would write letters to me, and I'd write her. She'd write me. And I could write, probably write a book on the love letters from 
what she wrote over the years that we finally hooked up. And now she used to send homemade cookies and stuff, and Ken, she'd make stuff for Kendra and Eddie and, and stuff for Mom, and she'd give my mom, she'd give my wife, Bernadette, some of the Mary Kay products mm. that she likes to, to use, you know, so man, not getting that no more. <laughs> box would come for Christmas, you know. <laughs> we always look forward to the box from Mama Virginia. Yeah. And I called her, I, I called my mom that raised me Mama, but uh, I couldn't call her Mama because that was, you know, too close to the woman that was that raised me. Mm-hmm. So I just called her Mother, you know, and she appreciated that. She liked that because she, she didn't. I think at one point in our in our uh, meeting and coming together and, and 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 communicating she wanted to she wanted to hear not miss virginia all that she wanted to hear that that closeness that that mother thing you know so yeah. that's why i started calling her mother and she appreciated that so uh hey like i said i'm not complaining Mm-mm. what about your birth father that's another story, <laughs> <laughs> and it's another story in that it that I'm lucky to be here as a child, but because of that, okay, uh, he uh, he raped her at 15, and so I'm a product of that. You see? Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, so <laughs> I have. <laughs> uh, of course, he died a long time ago, and she remarried, and that's where the other, uh, my other siblings come in. Uh, her name was, I was born uh, Marvin Revere, because I'm from the Revere side of, of, of up in uh, Ohio and down in Georgia and all them other places. Uh, but when you adopt, you, when, when you uh, uh, put in an orphanage situation, there's no birth certificate you they have to make one up once you become adopted you see what I mean because mm-hmm. I petitioned as Marvin Revere but there was no record of Marvin Revere only until they I was adopted then I was adopted under Edward N. Hamilton senior and Amy Hamilton you see mm-hmm. that's where I come in with Ed Hamilton well Edward my, I, my name is Edward but I go by Ed because it's shorter for putting it on my bronzes and when I was painting you know I hate to write all that it takes too long when you're signing millions of autographs, right? right. I mean, yeah, just yeah. like itched. Boom. <laughs> Through, you know. <laughs> so that's, that's what happened. Well, I think that probably speaks to the great job that your adoptive parents, your parents, mm-hmm. uh, did raising you because I know I have adopted cousins. I've got mm-hmm. best friends who are adopted and uh, most of them knew from be- their beginning, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. but uh, I-, I know that when people figure out uh, later in life, that can kind of spin oh, yeah. them on a spiral, oh, you yeah. know, and they're oh, searching. Yeah. And it's yeah. like your yeah. identity is then yeah. shaken because you're yeah. like, well, who am I? You have these right. big, yeah. heavy existential mm-hmm. crisis questions, mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. what I mean? But mm-hmm. uh, but that's that's uh, what and a story. I, and I guess I never, you know, the only thing, as I was saying, was. My only concern was just health reasons. I was satisfied <laughs> that I was raised in a good family, you know. Sure. I didn't complain about that. And I never confronted my mama with it, although, and now she was 
she would have been a hundred years old had she lived uh, during the time that I found my birth month. Mm-hmm. And in her going down and in hospice, I was at the uh, nursing home where she was, and I think I had a conversation. I and, and I said, "Oh, you know, Mom, I, I found my birth mother," and I seen her look up, <laughs> and but no real reaction. And then she just went back into that mode, you know. See, the issue was, I never would have known in the first place had she not saved the paper. That's the issue. See, she got sick, and I had to put her in the hospital. And I went searching for all her information, you know, medical cards and stuff and license and everything. And, you know, old people always put stuff. They had stuff everywhere, you know. <laughs> I mean, you find stuff. No telling where you find stuff. Well, I found a little change purse under the mattress. Didn't think nothing about it. Threw it in the bag. Got to the hospital. You know, it takes forever to admit somebody to the hospital. So I didn't get out of the hospital until about 1 or 2 o'clock that morning. When I got back home, I, I got me a big maker's mark, sat down and chilled, you know. Mm-hmm. You know she's okay. and She's in the hospital. They're going to take care of her. And so the next day, that's when I started going through stuff in the bag. And that's when I found the little change purse that I found under the mattress Opened it up, and oh, my Lord, there was an old piece of paper, two pieces of paper folded 40 different ways. You know how you fold <laughs> stuff up, you know, you oh, yeah. make it smaller. Why didn't she throw it away? Why didn't she burn it? For some reason, maybe in the back of her mind, she couldn't admit to tell me, but she maybe knew maybe this would be the way that he would find out which was probably best anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's how I found out, the paper, the, the actual adoption paper. Wow. <laughs> so she kept that thing all that time. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. If she'd have gotten rid of it, there'd be no, you know, I never would have known. Mm-mm. And when you said, Mama, I found out, mm-hmm. you she said just, you just went back to sleep. Yeah, she just went back to sleep. She, <laughs> she looked up, smiled a little bit, and then boom, gone back and I, about time. I get, get about time you found it. <laughs> you know. I bet that's what it was about. Yeah. She wasn't going to admit it. But I think she knew somewhere along the way he's going to find it. Mm-hmm. And, she didn't, and probably she could not get rid of it because of the connection to that thing, you know. Yeah. She wasn't going to let that go. In life something. Yeah. It, it absolutely is. Okay, so you you get out of school, you begin working as an artist, which I'm sure was probably, you know, it's like you go to school for something like that, mm-hmm. and you're praying that you're going to be mm-hmm. able to make it work, right? Yeah, but, right, right. You know, it's like people that go to acting school and right. then move out yeah. to L.A., and, and it's like... They're waiting tables. Yeah. You know, parking cars. Exactly. <laughs> but I was fortunate. Uh, in that uh, I did look for some uh, art jobs, but there were no jobs uh, available, like illustrating, stuff like that. Because I used to do, uh, when I was in art school, I worked at the, the old Jacob Levy's Lumber Company on 12th and Brackenridge. Hmm. And beautiful person, Bob, I never will forget him. His name was Bob Flock. Uh, 
and it was owned by the uh, uh, Levy family, who not only had that, but they all remember Levy Brothers on Third uh, and uh, Market Street. That was the old Levy's clothing store, men, okay. men and women and children clothing store. And uh, so every Saturday I would go down and illustrate. When you look in the Sunday papers, you'd see illustrations of sinks and you know stuff, hardware stuff, you know. And that was a part of my process of being able to draw and, and, and illustrate and paint with uh, ink and, you know, gradations because it wasn't in color. It was all black and white mm -hmm. illustration. I loved that. But it was not a future there either, you know. So uh, I'd done that, made signs, you know. I waited tables. I worked at the Penn Dennis Club. Mm. I had an uncle who was one of the head maitre d's there and uh, – Somehow I got to him and I said, Uncle Runyon, I need a job. Because I'd been married 67, we got married, and 68, my son was born, first born, okay? He was supposed to be born on the uh, 1st of January, so we could have got that jar of money. <laughs> first <laughs> children born, you know, they used to give you a big jar of money when the firstborn is on, on, on New Year's Day, you know what I mean? He pops in on the second. <laughs> Didn't get the money. It's okay. But uh, <laughs> Never had good timing, did he? Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, I've done that, waited tables, and uh, like I said, you know, you, you do what you got to do to make those ends meet, mm -hmm. take care of family, you know, that's what you got to do. But then the best thing that uh, the, the the big breakthrough came when I met the sculptor Barney Bright while I was teaching out at Iroquois. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I met him on a sunny April day in 1973, I uh, was buying clay at the King Ceramic Shop. And I've told, I, I, it looks like I tell this story all the time. And I, I guess people might be getting tired of hearing it. I don't know. Well, I haven't heard but, it. But, you but I wanted to ask him, you oh, know, ask you about yeah. the mentorship, that, yeah, that's, uh, this yeah, relationship. That's, that's yeah. where, yeah. That, so what ended up happening was Barney's studio was on uh, Frankfurt Avenue at uh, 2031 Frankfurt Avenue up the street from the school from the blind. Mm -hmm. And next to Barney's studio, which was actually in the same complex, it was a big old house building. Uh, Barney was on one side and the King Ceramic Shop was on the other. And uh, the only thing that separated them was a wall between them. And I knew that was Barney's studio because I had been following his works while I was in art school, and I'd see his works over at Speed Museum and Merida Gallery on 4th Street. And there was another gallery called Thor Gallery that used to be on 1st and 1st uh, Street off of Broadway. So this one particular day, I was out there buying uh, clay for school, and uh, Daniel King, great old gentleman, Love to talk art, love to talk worldly things. He'd get you in the conversation. He'd never get out of there, see? <laughs> so we got to talking, and I looked at my watch. I said, Daniel, I got to get out of here. I got to get back to school. So he said, okay, all right. Well, let's load up the car. I was parked out front. And what ended up happening was, and if you believe in destiny or fate, this, this, this is it. This is a true testament for fate as well as destiny and opportunity I'm sitting in the car loaded it up sat there for a little bit looked over at Barney's doors and said well 
to myself, I guess I said, why don't you get out of the car and go over and knock on the door? Now you're right here, you know. I couldn't do it. Something just would not allow me to get open that door and get out of the car and go over and knock on that man's door. So I sat there a little bit longer. Thank God I did, because what ended up happening was just as I was getting ready to turn the key in the ignition, he came out the front to check his mailbox on the side of the building. I said, uh-oh. I got out of the car, very carefully walked over to him, said, Mr. Bright, I'm Ed Hamilton. I love your works. I've seen your works. And and I guess I said, could maybe I could see your studio or something like that. See, I do remember what he said. He said, sure, come on in. I said, when I crossed that threshold, ooh, it was over. I saw things, man, and I just, it just put me back in my art sculpture class at art school, you know, and all these figures and models and heads and uh, hands and arms. I mean, you know, the whole thing. And so we sat there and we started talking. He said, well, where'd you go to school? I said, well, I went to the art center school. He said, well, I taught out there. He said, I said, oh, you did? I, I, I never seen him because I think he taught in the evening. Mm-hmm. And so he said, now, uh, you know, I saw some. I saw a piece out there that I I thought had had potential. I thought the the the, the student had potential. He said it was on that block out in front of the school. I said, well, what 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 was it? He said, well, it was this kind of it, it was kind of a rough figure, life size. Uh, and I said, but was was the was it a male figure? He said, yeah, it's a male figure, and his arms were going over this way, kind of distorted looking, you know. Well, what it was, I was in the Rodin's work, Auguste Rodin, the French sculptor back in the 1800s mm-hmm. in Paris. And I just loved his work. I was just, his work just was just such a big influence on me. And I took the notion to try to create one of his pieces that's on his Gates of Hell that he worked on for years that was supposed to be baptistry or museum doors, but they never became that. But it's, it's, it was a, his Adam that he did that stands on top of this uh, gates of hell. Mm-hmm. And I said, that was my piece. He said, oh, really? Well, you, you know, I thought it had potential. He said, "He said, you know what? I got a job coming up, and I'm going to need some help. And if you, you know, willing, I guess. I don't, it's been so long, I don't know specifically what he said, but I do know I said, yeah, I'm ready, Mr. Bright. You know, I'm ready. So somehow, I don't know if I, if I called him, he called me, but I ended up working for him for about eight years as an apprentice, you know, and that's where I learned the, the, the business of the business of sculpture and how to do public art pieces out in the public sector, you know. Mm-hmm. So that was really the big that was that, that without that. I doubt if I would have been doing any, I probably wouldn't be here sitting talking to you that today because I wouldn't have had that knowledge because art school really could only give you so much, sure. you know, and because it can only give you so much because the instructor has their way, their ways, and they may not be doing what you want to do, you see? Yeah. Because my my sculpting instructor was basically a wood carver, and I didn't I didn't particularly like carving wood, <laughs> but the good news was, in that school setting, you were allowed to explore all the disciplines. You know, wood carving, stone carving, 
model making, uh, plaster casting, bronze casting, uh, mold making. It was all the things to allow you to find out what you don't want to do. Right. See, in other words, just putting you in one mold and say, you got to do it this way. No, let's try this. Now, okay, let's, let's, we did this for about four or five weeks. Let's do something else now, see. And that allowed you to see, oh, I don't know if I like this or not. You know, well, it turns out <laughs> I wasn't no stone carver, <laughs> and I certainly wasn't no wood carver. So, but what I, where I found myself uh, was in the clay. And so he saw me so wrapped up in clay modeling, he said, you're in charge of the clay bin. <laughs> so I had to take care of the clay bin, you know, keep keep the clay good and soft and malleable for for people to work with. So through Barney, I found what I I found myself in the role that I was going to be thrust into at some point. And when the big break came for the Booker T. Washington piece at Hampton Institute in Virginia, mm-hmm. Hampton, Virginia, in 1983, I was ready. But I might not have been ready if I had not met Barney. You see me? What did that mean to you to have somebody that you idolized, in a way, take interest in you Mm -hmm. and foster this creative Mm -hmm. thing that you had inside Mm -hmm. you, you know? Words can't really describe how you feel. First of all, Barney's white. Had no, that was no, uh, you know, issues. Uh, he knew his stuff. He expected high quality out of whoever he was, you know, apprenticing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just felt so in tune with just wanting to please him. You see, if I could please him, that way I learn even more, you see. Uh, because we had a lot of people who wanted to work with us and work there. But they didn't want to put in the time, didn't want to get dirty. You know, sculpture's not clean. Sculpture, you know, well, you see me sometimes, I'm scrungy looking, you know. <laughs> but that goes with the territory. You know, I'm, 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 in, I'm in material that lends itself to dirt <laughs> and crusty, you know, plaster, <laughs> uh, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I just, I just felt like, man, this cat, he really saw me as not so much as an equal but somebody he could take and mold you know uh and then when he knew it was time for me to spread my wings he knew it was that time you know and once I was let I could fly you know after I spent my time with him so how how did that first piece come about uh that first piece came about uh through a commission from the Binghams, uh, the, the newspaper Binghams back in the day. Mm-hmm. And the piece itself was called the River Horse. And they want what they, uh, uh, there was an architect uh, named by the name of Ely who designed a plaza out front of the federal building as it sits off of Chestnut Street, 6 and Chestnut. It's right across from the WHAS TV station. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if you come down, if you come up Chestnut from, uh, uh, what, 
7th Street, and you encounter, uh, you look over to the right, there's the big federal building, but then all that front area is just a nice people plaza and a, a water fountain type place, and then the river horse is coming up out of that fountain, you see. And so Barney had to create that, and he created a small working model, as we all do. We make models first, and then we go from the model to the big version. And I was put in charge of creating the structure that would allow us to pack it and then put clay on it, and then he'd come along and put his final touches on it, see. Mm. And so it began on a small scale, small 12-inch model, grew up to a 20-foot wingspan, then clay, and I had to keep the clay soft because we wasn't using water clay, we was using uh, oil-based clay. And every day during wintertime, I had to come in and stoke the coal stove in the back to, to keep that area warm so the clay would, you know, be, you could push it, see. Otherwise, every morning the clay be hard as a rock almost, see. <laughs> so he couldn't use it like that. And so then we get, and then once he put his final finishes on it, then I was processed to do the, uh, uh, make the plaster molds all over, all over the piece. And then from the plaster molds, I had to put a layer of rubber and felt, two layers of rubber, two layers of felt, to make a quarter-inch pattern in those molds. And then we took those patterns and molds down to a place called American Brass and Aluminum that no longer exists. It was a foundry. It was a sand cast foundry. Mm-hmm. And and this process allowed you to be able to cast uh, the piece in sand it with undercuts. And why, it was, why the patterns were rubber is because if you put anything hard on that rubber, the rubber will give and come out, see? But if that if that if that rubber were plaster hard, you couldn't pack the sand on top of it and pull it off without breaking the undercut stuff. See, because Barney liked to have uh, textural stuff on his pieces. And so then we made all those molds down there. Cast they cast them in bronze. They got we took them took them all back to the studio and then started welding them all together. And then a crane came along, picked it up, took it down to the site dropped it down boom it's over so i've got an actual photograph of me in the courier journal on top of the horse's head with a wire brush polishing his head up you know (laughs) (laughs) oh it was a great project and see the other issue is when you work for someone like that and you do good they honor you by allowing you to sign off on something so if you look under the horse, uh, under uh, the river horse's tail, because see, it's a river. Some people look at that horse coming up out of that water with the wings and the and the tall wing, and think, oh, that's a Pegasus. But it's not a Pegasus. It's a river horse because it's got a fish tail coming up off the backside. <laughs> see, so underneath that tail on his butt, Barney Bright signed it, and under his name is assisted by Ed Hamilton. There is. In bronze. What was the most important lesson that Barney ever taught you? Do good. <laughs> <laughs> Don't mess up. <laughs> uh, and I think that, you know, I, I saw that in him. He worked every day. 
came to work every day. He worked all day, you know, till about five, five thirty, you know. Uh, and I just saw a man who was, uh, uh, he was. I'm looking for the right word. What would you say he was? He was a. Uh, oh shoot. Not ambitious, because he already he already was amb- he, he he had enough ambition to do what he was going to do, you know. That, that's no question, but he was charged to do good work. That's, that's I guess that's what I'm trying to say, you know. And when you do good work, you get you get work. People come back to you. You see. Mm-hmm. So I learned that if you don't do good work, they're not coming back. <laughs> see, so you got to do good work. So that's a big, I think that's the biggest thing. And I always asked Barney, I said, Barney, why didn't you leave Louisville? And that was the key. He said, well, I thought about it, but I had to work. And that's all we want, you know? I mean, it doesn't matter where you are. If you got the work, you're doing okay. But if you ain't got the work, well, you better find something else to do, I guess. (laughs) Or go someplace else. But I always thought after he said that, you know, I said, you know, he's right about that. I'd rather be the big fish in the little pond here than be the little fish in the big pond up in New York trying to starve to death, trying to get a job. You know what I mean? Sure. So that's the way it is. You got to find. And that's what I tell these young artists today. I said, look, don't. I might be a role model, but don't think you're going to come in here just because you see what I've done and it's just going to happen overnight. It don't work that way. Mm -hmm. What you see around you is years and years of accumulating works and doing things, you see. Uh, So then they have to understand that you're right. This this, this don't happen overnight. You got to start here and work your way up to the top. So right about here, my brother comes in, walks upstairs, is walking around, he's got some boots on, he's opening up some boxes, and I run upstairs and I go, Matt, be quiet, please. And I'm like, Ed, hang on one second, I gotta run up here. And you know, I'm like waiting on him to leave because you can hear every little thing. And then I come back down and then I'm kind of so flustered and I've lost my train of thought. So then I start saying, Well, Ed, I had a question and I and it's it, you know it's going to jog my memory so we were just talking about most important lessons most important lessons barney bright and i can't really remember where i was and we pick up from here most important lesson one has to realize is you got to know when you're ready and you got to be ready when it happens and you got to take advantage of every opportunity that comes your way cuz if you don't it don't come back. If I had not gotten that opportunity to meet that man at that opportune time, I don't think it would have happened any time place else. I don't think if it had happened outside of his studio, it might have just been, oh, Mr. Brightman, oh, how are you? Nice to meet you. And then gone on. Now, he might have said, well, come to the studio someday, you know. And who, who knows? I might not ever. Someday. someday never comes. Never comes. That's right. But that one opportunity time, that, 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 that moment that I looked and thought, uh-oh, there he is. This is it. Got to go. <laughs> Take it. If I had not done that, mm-mm. But that was fate. That, that, I believe, that was meant to be. That was meant to be. Otherwise, I don't think it would have ever happened. 
over your career, have you had who who has been your Ed Hamilton? You know, who have been your students or your apprentices that you look at that? Because uh, I'm sure a, a, a bunch of people probably come to you and say, Ed, I want to do this and I want to be this. That, and, yeah. you know, those come a dime a dozen, right? But who are, who are your Ed Hamiltons that actually stuck it out, that were there mm-hmm. at 6 a.m. in the morning mm-hmm. getting scattered with clay and all mm-hmm. kinds of shit? Mm-hmm. Who were who well, some of those people? My friend Bi- uh, William Duffy, and he's a sculptor now, and he's getting uh, some good commission pieces. Getting ready. Matter of fact, he just uh, became... Uh, him and another friend of ours, Dave Coddell, who's a sculptor, uh, is going to be creating the unknown benches that are for uh, the unknown Africans uh, down at the waterfront part down there. Uh, but he was with me when I was nobody. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we I brought him along with me when we had the first away from home studio on Seven Twelve West Main Street. And it was another one too, uh, G. G. Calman Cox, who I greatly admired, but never knew he knew me as a child, because he used to paint the marquees at the Lyric and the Grand Theater on Walnut Street, and he knew my mom and pop. See, and when I met him later on in life, at a place called the Old Louisville Art Workshop, uh, where I got my education on uh, African art and stuff. Uh, he said, oh, young man, I've been knowing you. I knew you was, when you were knee-high to him. <laughs> I said, I'd be daggone. Ain't that something? But he was a painter. He wasn't a sculptor. And then I brought him along with us. So then we had to, we shared studio. We all three had shared the studio together. And I brought him to the uptown studio from the from Main Street to the Cloisters and then from the Cloisters around to 543. So until G.C., uh, uh, passed. He was ninety some years old, and uh, he was still painting at at ninety some years old. But he had stopped coming to the studio because his legs, and he had to come up that second floor area, and it was hard walking up that second floor stuff. And Duffy left and opened up his own place at home in his uh, garage. But he's doing good now too. Yeah, he's good. doing good. And he teaches school. He teaches with the. Uh, Children's free art classes and 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 does commission works. So he's got some nice things. Check him out. Oh, it's William Duffy dot uh, uh, com. I think that's his uh, website. Mm-hmm. He's good man. So I want to ask you about your creative process. Is there a method that you use when you walk into the studio? Is it just when inspiration strikes and you're like, I gotta, I gotta you know, go with this feeling and roll with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, are, are there things that you do to, to kind of get in that mode or mm-hmm. when you're, when you're trying to create or mm-hmm. tell me about that. I guess the first thing that happens when I open the door, I say, Hey, what's going on in here? Cause I got all these figures and stuff, man, these heads looking at me, you know, what y'all doing? Uh, but then once I put on my smock or whatever you want to call it, I kind of figure out, okay, what am I, what am I doing today? You know, what's what's priority? See, uh, I might work because I've got several projects I'm working on at the same time right now. Uh, and so it's just a matter. Then I, oh, I put my music on. I gotta have some music, you know. Now, right now I'm into Christmas music, but okay. normally if I get away, I got jazz on, you know, that type of thing, uh, <clears throat> and 
So it's just a matter of, of, of how I'm feeling at the moment. Now, I might just come in sometimes and not do anything, but just kind of observe. See, sculptors observe things, and you have to have <laughs> eyes to see, you see, mm-hmm. because you're dealing with 3D things. It's not like looking at a, a page, you know. But I'm looking at this microphone here, and I'm thinking, oh, ooh, this is interesting design-wise, you know. Uh, so you, you, you study what you're working on, and then there comes a moment where now i got to do something to it. So that means I might pick up a hunk of clay and just start doing something, see. And then once I get into the clay, that just I'm 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 in the zone at that point, and I'm just concentrating on looking, putting it on, turning, making sure it feels right. Mm-hmm. Nothing ever feels right when you first start it, because it's it just it's not there yet. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And you think, oh God, how come this ain't working right? You know. But then it's only going to come to life after you work on it. You got to work on it. You got to work at it. You see, you can't just come in, slap some clay down and think, voila, there it is. <laughs> it, it don't work that way, see. You got to keep putting it. And then you look and you keep putting. Then sometimes you get back away from it, you know, and, and you study it a while. Uh, then you get back to it again. So uh, sculpture is very intense because uh, it's not like trying to be a painter and, and, and making uh, form on a page or a canvas. And, and, and you're trying, what you're trying to do when you're painting, you're trying to create dimension, but you can't get around it. So you, you, you're trying to create an illusion of form and dimension, see? But sculpture entails you you have to deal with everything in the round, you see. And that means you can't fudge it because what happens over here is going to have some presence over here. Everything has to follow the format, you might say, Mm -hmm. see. And it's got to be real. So there are days when I go in and I might just pick up a New York Times and just sit there and read a little bit, drink a little cup of coffee. And then I'll look over at so-and-so and and think, "Uh uh-oh, let me go over. I see something I I missed the day before. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. Then you get back into that zone again, see? So it's kind of the way it works. Everybody works differently. You know, some people are so intense, they just keep working and working and working. I can't. I used to, I can't work like that around the clock like I used to. You know, I'd go in at 6 o'clock in the morning. And, and by the time I get out of there, I'm like, ah, I'm wore out because I just kept intense, intense, intense. But there are times now my age, I've, I guess age has its place, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm a little slower now, mm-hmm. not as fast as I used to be. Don't climb the ladders as fast as I used to, uh, you know. Uh, don't, 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 don't carry that heavy clay like I used to, you know. So, uh, so uh, you, you know, you, your, your body tells you different things once you, you get that age going. See. But do you think that's helped your approach 
as you've gotten older and realized mm. that you don't have to rush through some of these yeah, projects? Yeah, yeah. And I tell them, I say, look, ain't no sense in y'all making me put me on no deadline because I'm not going to rush this thing. I'm telling <laughs> you, man. I got the – I tell you one thing that happened. Uh, when I did the York statue for the Belvedere, you've seen that. Mm-hmm. That was done by another current administrator, uh, administration. And halfway through it, I realized I can't meet that deadline that they wanted, you know, because they wanted because his his administration was going out, so he wanted to be able to say, "Hey, this is what I've done," and and I finally had to decide, okay, what are you gonna do? Because had I rushed it, I know I would have done something wrong. I would if something wouldn't have been right. I just because I just can't. I just I can't. I can't rush something that is so important that I've got to put my name on it. If I can't put my name on it, then I'm, I'm out. I'm through it. You know, you gotta, you, you gotta be able to uh, put something out there that you know is gonna be out there for eons, and you want to be not only you want to be feel good about it, but you want people to feel good about it too. So if they feel good about it, then I've done my job. But I've got to feel good about it before you even get it. See. So I had to say, I'm sorry, uh, Mr. Mayor, but I, 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 oh, he was, oh, he got so mad. <laughs> but I, you know, and I think he understood after he saw the results. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's the key, you know. If, 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 if you know in your heart of hearts that you're going to do your very best in spite of the timetables, you know, and then once it's out there, then people, they recognize that. But that's why I tell them, I say, you, I'm, I'm, I can't rush. Not now, anyway. Right. <laughs> I ain't got too old to rush. <laughs> <laughs> Through rushing. Oh, and I think you've earned that. I think you've earned that. Yeah, I think so. What is, um, what's, a, what's a piece that you've always wanted to do that's your dream piece, that if you could have anybody commission it, do you have something like that? Or are you working on that? Mm, not really. Uh, I think I've always wanted to do a Martin Luther, and I finally did. So I, I, I guess I can't really, I can't really say. I'd like to do a John Lewis statue. Yeah, I don't know if it'll ever come about. I don't know. Uh, maybe somebody will do it. But I, you know, I, I'm at the point now where I'm, I'm almost at the point where I'm trying to wean, wean myself from these public commissions because it just takes a lot out of you now, you know. Uh, I like the aspect of the designing in the beginning of getting a commission and doing the, the site models and stuff like that and the, and the small versions. But then when it comes time to have to enlarge it, that's where the work comes in, you know. And I'm thinking, oh, God, now I got to do work. Jeez. <laughs> Jeez. But uh, no, I don't. I don't. I don't have any particular dream piece at this point. Mm-mm. So your spirit of freedom piece is the one that most people cite as your kind of most notable mm-hmm. one. And mm-hmm. I, I got as a, as an artist, does that ever bother you when you're like, man, I got all these other pieces, and everybody always talks about this one? Does that ever bug you at all? No. Uh, and I always say, people ask me, "What's your favorite piece?" And I say, "Well, really, I don't have a favorite. I mean." I like them all, but 
in the final analysis, there are several that maybe stand out more because of the uh, the way that they have been uh, recognized over the over the country, over the world, whatever. Uh, I, I guess that's like saying, "Well, do you like your daughter better than you like your son?" Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. how can how can you how can you say that? See, so but the spirit of freedom. Undoubtedly, as I look at it, it, it in the annals of brothers and sisters, <laughs> uh, the siblings, that piece in the sibling group stood out more. You see I me? Mean? Uh-huh. It's not like we liked him any better. He just stood out more. He stole the show. He just stole the show. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We still like the rest of them. Sure. But spirit just took it and ran and I just I just never I, you know but I knew I knew in my heart that if I got that commission in DC that would be the one that would be the most powerful piece in my menu my collection my uh, of works of course okay and because once you get outside of your green pasture everybody looks at you different see had i not ever gotten a piece out of here then i'd just be good old ed you know oh he does good work you know but until somebody stamps you from outside because see we're always into that aspect of we got to be stamped by somebody and that, that approval and then all of a sudden the Oh yes! Oh, you know, so and so they they put the approval on it. Oh, he's good now. You know what I mean? Yeah. But uh, that's the way it is, you know. And I think that's what happened to Barney. Barney never he. I'm trying to think. He did uh, he did a, a piece on uh, Dr. J in Philadelphia, and he got notoriety for that. But most of Barney's stuff was localized, you know. And he, I just don't think he, he should have gotten more praise from around. But he never, he never, he never stepped out that far. I guess I don't know, you know. And I guess I just lucked up, and stuff started happening outside of here more so than was happening here, you know. Which I'm sure is kind of a nice thing because, like you said, you you would rather be the big fish in a smaller mm-hmm. pond. But then, as you go through your career. You, it's it's I think natural. Mm-hmm. It's naturally as a human to wonder, well, could I have made it somewhere else? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. when you get that Washington yeah, D.C. Yeah, commission, yeah. and that validates, it's like, yeah, mm-hmm. see, I, I was I could have yeah. hung. I I, I did, and yeah, I did, well, and I did. I, I you know I don't know because it seems to me that some of the commissions that I have gotten based on outside commissions, even those that lived in those areas. They didn't get it. You see what I mean? Why didn't they get it? And one dude that I talked to, a sculptor, I thought he got the Joe Lewis. I called him to congratulate him. He said, no, they didn't even allow me to participate. I said, what? He said, yeah. Because I visited his studio some years before this thing ever came about. But yet somehow... I got involved from outside 
and got it. He's inside and couldn't get it. Now, what does that tell you? You see what I mean? So I don't know. If I lived in New York or, or D.C., I could have lived in D.C., but maybe I, I don't know if I'd have got it, you know? Mm-hmm. Who knows? Well. <laughs> it's a question for another day. Yeah. We don't have to worry about that one. Um, Where does – so a lot of the pieces that you've done are representative of – black history and black stories mm-hmm. um was that intentional or Mm-mm. no wasn't intentional on my part it just so happens that they were looking for somebody they were looking to address these to honor these uh, people or incidents and i just happened to be <laughs> happened to be the sculptor that wanted to compete because I had to compete for these things. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that they said, hey, come on, we want you to do this. Uh, it was only after I got a bunch of those under my belt that I could decide now, I don't want to do this, compete no more. See? I said, now, you want me to do it? I'll do it. But I'm, I'm not competing no more. But I, but, I, but I had to. I had to do those com- competitions, you know, because they didn't know me from Adam, see? Uh, so the projects were already in place. They just needed somebody to implement them. So it wasn't my call. It wasn't like, oh, I think I'm going to do a Booker T. Washington, you know. Oh, I think I'm going to do a Joe Lewis, you know. So where am I going to put it? What am I going to do with it after I made it? See what I mean? So uh, the call comes from an organization or a group of people or whatever who want to do some sort of commemoration of, and then they go out and look for artists, and then they say, okay, Let's put this out, and you see it, and it says, "Well, please send us your resume, slides, or pictures of what you've done before." You know, blah blah blah, and if, and if if your stuff fits the mold of what they're looking for, mm-hmm. and then they pick four or five people, and then y'all have to compete against each other, and then somewhere along the way, it's going to get down to two, then it gets down to one, and then that's it. You got it. You got it. See. So you, it's not that I'm picking these pieces. I I, I never would have picked them. I never even I didn't know about York, <laughs> truthfully, <laughs> until Jim Holmberg of Filson uh, Society came to me and said, "We want to honor York." I said, "Oh, that's great, Jim. We want you to do a York memorial. Okay, that's great. Who's York?" I'm serious. He said, "Well, here." Uh, he went all through the whole thing. And of course, we all know York was on the Lewis and Clark expedition, correct? You know. It was a band of brothers, as well as one sister on there, Chicago Weir. You know, she was a part of the group, the only female of the group. But York stood out because he was big and black, and he was William Clark's slave. And when they went into the Native American territories, they put York up front because the Native Americans had never seen a black man like that before, you know. So they, they, they admired York, see. So every time they'd go through these territories, York would be leading. Because sometimes the white guys would, were getting killed coming through those territories. You know, they didn't want you coming through there, man. You you trespassing on their territory, see. Mm-hmm. So I never knew that much about because they didn't teach us that. I, didn't, I don't remember being taught about Lewis and Clark expedition in school, high school. It would be probably in high school other than not junior high. I don't know. And... Uh, so I had to get I had to get a gym to 
educate me on who York was and Lewis and Clark and William Clark. And there's connection here because William Clark and George Rogers Clark are brothers, mm-hmm. the founder of Louisville, you see, mm-hmm. George Rogers Clark. Mm-hmm. And York and, and William Clark grew up as children on their father's plantation in Virginia, see? So when Clark and Meriwether, when, Mer- when Jefferson, uh, President Thomas Jefferson, contacted uh, Meriwether Lewis wanting to explore the, the Louisiana Purchase Territories for, for a route to the uh, north, to the Pacific, Meriwether Lewis contacted Clark, William Clark, and said, I want you co-captain with me, you know. And so that meant that when Clark said, oh, let's go, pack our stuff, let's go. So he brought York along with him, see. So that's why York was a part of the Lewis and Clark expedition, the the, the band of brothers, as we call them, see. And, uh, but the only thing that happened with him was he was free, literally free for three years. I mean, free as a bird along with everybody else. But when the expedition was over and everybody thought they were lost, nobody heard from them. All of a sudden, they popped up out of the blue. Here they come. <laughs> what? They are alive. You know, they, they made it. See? They got accommodations. They invited to the White House. York couldn't go. They got money. York didn't get any money. Uh, uh, they got land. York didn't get any land. And all York wanted was to come back to Louisville and, and live with his wife, Rose. And so Clark says he put him up in a tray business, you know, tray business of going up and down selling goods or whatever. But we don't know if York could even read or write. I mean, I don't know. You know, maybe he could. I mean, but why would you put somebody in that kind of business setting when he's got to deal with these other people who are prejudiced against him? You see. Mm-hmm. So it was a it was a it was a dynamics that was just. It, it, it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't too good. So York, we we understand that Clark says York died of cholera in Tennessee. We don't know that for a fact, but we do know years and years later, uh, an old black man was on a Crow reservation, and when people would come through the Northern Territories, he would always tell the story that he was on the Lewis and Clark expedition. So that could have been York. You see. So what we think is. He said, I can't take no more of this insulin that he's doing to me, beating me, and he wanted to sell him off to another plantation down in uh, Louisiana someplace. And, 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 and what I like to think is he just up and left and went back to the Native American territories where they, they loved him mm-hmm. and spent his life out there. That's what we think. Because there's, there's no knowledge of where he might have died of cholera in Tennessee and no grave site of nowhere, you know. Who knows? Who knows? He might have just made that up just to say, you know, where's your slave now? Oh, you know, he died of cholera in Tennessee. Sure. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, artists, sculptors are uh, historians. Yeah. In spite of not learning it in school. <laughs> <laughs> you learn it later, you know, and that's good. That's good. That's good, you know. Well, you're storytellers. That's right. Yeah. 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 It literally. Yeah. Literally. You, you got to be, because if you don't know your subject, then, then, then what you going to, you know, how you going to put it out? 
And York sits down in uh, the Riverfront Plaza, right? The Belvedere. The Belvedere, okay. It's on the Belvedere. Fifth and Main, right next door to the Kentucky Center for the Arts and the uh, and, and in the back of the uh, American Life Insurance Building. That is actually uh, the building, it's the, the, the Insurance Life Building, is a replica of one of uh, Mies van der Rohe's buildings. Less is more, uh, the Baja uh, School back in the day, mm-hmm. Mies van der Rohe, and that's it, built on his, uh, built on the way he, that he, art, he, he designed architecture. And so York sits right there on top of the, the, right in the back of the fountain right there as it cascades down, you know. And then he's looking over north toward the northern territory. And he's actually, he's actually looking at the statue of George Rogers Clark that when you look at George Rogers Clark, George Rogers Clark, his head is turned so far around, you don't know if he's had an exorcist or what. <laughs> How you turn your head? Yeah, I mean, it's almost like he completely turned it because he's, <laughs> he's pointing one when he's looking the other way. And so we all surmise that York is looking at, at Clark and thinking, He's asking, which way do we go? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and he's a big strapping guy. I mean, oh, he's, yeah. he's big, oh, yeah. broad shoulders. Big, yeah. He stands tall and yeah, powerful. Yeah. And yeah, 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 yeah. And the detail work is phenomenal, I must say myself. <laughs> Compliments the, of the When show. you look at the George Rogers Clark statue, the way he presented it, Felix de Weldon, He's a sculptor out of he's he's a sculptor that created the Hiroshima sculpture that's down in Washington D.C. You know the flag raising when they took over the oh, yeah, hill yeah. in Hiroshima, and then he did the Spirit of Detroit that sits downtown in Detroit, big huge uh, man uh, holding some things in their in his hand, and he the guy that I was telling you about that didn't get the Joe Lewis piece, he was the assistant to him. Mm-hmm. It's a Oscar small Grace. world. Yeah, Oscar Grace. And I thought, well, man, man, what a way, what a way, what a way. Yeah. Well, we almost went. Yeah, it's getting uh, it's getting late. It's starting to get late here. This is uh <clears throat> this has been great. Um I you know, I have I have one more question. When uh so we've seen some people tear down statues uh, recently in the last, you know, four or five years. And, you know, a part of me says, well, yeah, I mean, you want, upon examination of some of these people that we're tearing down statues of, yeah, should there be something memorializing? Are they really worthy of that? No, no, mm-hmm. probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, but some people think that tearing down statues is erasing history and that those mm-hmm. things exist mm-hmm. so that we can educate mm-hmm. people, younger people and everything mm-hmm. like that. And I just thought, you know, in researching a lot of your works and mm-hmm. as somebody who has spent so much time building and erecting these these amazing sculptures, mm-hmm. uh, what is your thought on when people tear down or, or topple statues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I have two uh, issues. As a sculptor, I always tend to uh, 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 look at outside works, how well some are done. I've never dealt with the issue of why they were done. Once I found out why they were done, then I'm saying, okay, 
now I understand they need to be someplace where they can be honored in their own way. Or if you're not going to move them, put something out there to say, okay, this is why they're here. This is who did these things. This is, this is who sponsored this stuff. And educate the people why they're there, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, because they were there for the lost cause. And the lost cause tried to rewrite history. <laughs> See, <laughs> that's the issue. Yeah, They are the ones that rewrote the Civil War history. So now, uh, justifiably, if it hurts you when you walk by these things, you should not have a society that hurts another portion of society just because you want to put that on their shoulders. Take them down, put them in a place where they can be honored in their own place, whatever, and let whoever wants to feel that they're part of their history, let them have that. But don't have something that's so hurtful to another group of people that, you know, it hurts you when you walk by this thing. And why is he? Is this the man who wants to enslave me? Why is he here? You know? So there's got to be a better way. Yeah. There's got to be. And we've moved some stuff. Uh, and the big Confederate memorial that used to sit in front of uh, the Speed Museum and that island of 2nd Street. Do you remember that? Not really. The obelisk with the three soldiers on each side and one on top. It's down, I think it's down in Henderson, Kentucky, you know, down in an area where there, there are more Confederate memorials, and it, 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 they found a home for it, mm. you know, in its, in, in its own way, in its own setting. So people who want to relish that aspect of the uh, that lost cause, that's on them. That's good, you know. That's my take, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> Do you think... Do you think we'll ever be able to move on and heal as a country if there are still, you know, what does it say about us as a society that there are still places where those, those, you know, mm-hmm. there, that there is a home for that? Mm-hmm. Well, you're never going to please everybody. You know, you're never going to please everybody. And uh, obviously they're not being made today. They were made at a particular time and place, you know, mm-hmm. to, 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 to say, oh, he did Here's how, this is what we've done. Uh, so uh, I think it's just a, there's a time, I, I, I think there's going to be a healing at some point in this in this, in this this country. I don't know, it won't be in my lifetime, maybe. I don't know, it won't be in yours, I don't think either. You know, I don't know. But we got to be, we got to have some kind of positive outlook to know that this, we can't be a country with so much diversity and not be uh, have have a success for country with all this diversity, you know. This is not a, a black and white country. This is a country of full of different ethnicities, and everybody give everybody contributes in some form or fashion, you know. Mm-hmm. And you're always going to have those who don't want that to happen, you know. But 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 this country is browning uh, as we know it, and. Uh, some folks don't want that to happen, but I don't know, man. You know, we just gotta we just gotta see what way the direction's gonna go. You know, what what which way the wind's gonna blow this thing. You know, I'll, all I'm hoping is it's gonna blow for the good. Okay, 
because there's some positive things in this country. Mm-hmm. And now we got to get over COVID. <laughs> so if we can get over that, mm-hmm. my God, you know, maybe <laughs> we can get back to interacting. But everybody's closed up. Everybody's in the house. I mean, you know, what can we do? You know, there's a, how many Zooms can you have? You know, yeah, yeah. Jesus. Yeah. But I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic. Good. Mm-hmm. Me too. Yeah. Me too. All right. Ed, thank you so much for uh, for being here and uh, giving us the real talk on everything that we covered today. Appreciate you. So that was Ed Hamilton. I hope you guys enjoyed that. If you do, please leave a review and a rating on Apple Podcast. Make sure you're subscribed, following along on Facebook at Real Talk W Benny T. Uh, Ed isn't on any social media channels, so you can't find him, um, but you can find his work if you're walking around Louisville and you can see some of the beautiful pieces that he's done. Uh, He does have a website and you can go and check out his work on his website as well. Um, And uh, guys, I'll be back on Wednesday again. Interviews are like bonuses. So we had one this week. Uh, I, I, I would rather do these where I get uh, really cool guests, really great guests, and just do them when I do, uh, rather than try to make sure that I've got a guest per week and stress out over that, and then you're like filling the weeks with people that you're really not even sure you, you want on the show. You're just like, oh, I got to get a guest. Who can I get? Who can I get? You know, like, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do quality guests, quality interviews, quality work, and I hope you guys can appreciate that. Uber Stories Part 17 next Wednesday. I will be back then. I am Ben Tompkins. That is Real Talk.